Let's see this coming. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm really excited to be interviewing two authors and historians who have been doing work in the field of Mormon fundamentalism and the history of polygamy for a long time. Craig L. Foster and Marion T. Watson. Can you say hello? Hi. Hello. Okay, so why don't you, before we get into your book and talk about your latest research, uh, why don't we talk about who you are? Marianne, can you first uh, sort of introduce yourself and tell us who you are? Yes, I, w- I am sixth-generation Mormon, um, the last of four generations are fundamentalist Mormons. And so I have a, a broad history in my lines of knowing about Mormonism and about fundamentalist Mormonism. I have a degree in history from the University of Utah, and I have worked for a number of years as a freelance genealogist, and I have compiled a number of uh, family history books, as well as doing fundamentalist history articles and papers. And you're really connected with a lot of the different plural communities. You're a friend to a lot of different folks on the wide Mormon diaspora. Is that fair to say? Yes, that's fair to say. And Craig, how do you position in all of this? Uh, well, I am uh, I'm an active Latter-day Saint. I have a, a bachelor's and a master's in history. And um, I have done research over the years on various topics dealing with Mormon history. But uh, I would say the past 10 years plus, you know, I've really focused on plural marriage. My good friend Newell Bringhurst and I co-edited the three-volume The Persistence of Polygamy series. And in, in each of the volumes, we wrote uh, essays as well as edited essays from other historians and it was it was a great learning experience uh, doing that. I had already spent a number of years studying plural marriage previous to that. Felt that I was you know, fairly knowledgeable, but you know the old saying that the more you learn, the more you realize how little you actually know. And that was the case uh, there. I realized how little I actually know, and so it was a it was a great learning experience for me to uh, to do that as I interviewed people from uh, different fundamentalist communities. That was kind of what uh, pushed me to talk with Marianne about, hey, maybe we should get together and write a history of fundamentalist Mormon faith. Which is so needed, and I I do have to say, we've talked about the persistence of polygamy books a lot on this podcast. They've been really, really useful in my research. And yeah, um, hopefully we've sold some books for you, because those volumes are priceless. I mean, they're so—if you want to understand this this history, these communities, you have to have the persistence of polygamy books. Thank you so much. That that makes me feel good, because— Newell and I feel that it was a really good contribution, but of course we would feel that way. We're the editors. But, um, so it's wonderful to hear that from from someone like you, who uh, you, have, you have done so much in the study of, uh, of plural marriage. So I really appreciate that on a personal level. It makes me feel good that uh, 
it's been that uh, it's been helpful. Well, that's why I'm so excited to have you guys on to talk about this because you, I mean, you know what you're talking about, and to have something like this book, it, I think is going to be really important, not just for Mormonism, but for the history of the American West. So I want to talk to you about, maybe you can just give our listeners sort of a brief synopsis of what the book is first, and then we're going to sort of dig in a little deeper. One thing I w- will tell you about is that uh, I went to the Western History Association meeting several years ago in Tucson, about 15 years ago, and I was so impressed with their publications at Arcadia Arcadia Publishing that I took a packet home and really thought seriously that I wanted to do something with it, with their with the publisher that way. And about 10 years later, they got a representative in Utah that called me on the phone and said, are you still interested in doing a project? And I said, yes, I am. And they said, what do you want to do it on? And I said, fundamentalist Mormonism. And he couldn't get off the phone fast enough. And so <laughs> when Craig and I talked about doing a project together, I told him the story. And he contacted Arcadia. And they were indeed interested, still interested in doing a project for us. And they have been wonderful to work with. I, I can't say good, enough good about them as a publisher. They have been I agree. to work with. That they are a publishing house that publishes all over the nation histories of places and peoples, communities, like and histories of hospitals. They have a photo. They do books, history books of mostly photos with captions, but they also do history books with text, photos and captions. And that's what, what we we went through that department. Yeah, I imagine just based on my experiences talking about this subject, people don't know how to make sense of it. And, and I think it's interesting because some people think, well, why would you want to tell that history? Well, it's a history that affects thousands and thousands of people. And I think it's an important one. It is extremely important. And it it doesn't get told, and usually get told, gets told with a lot of spin. And we didn't want to do that kind of. We didn't want to do it with a spin. We just wanted to, you know, tell the basic story. That's what we've done. Well, that's a good segue for this question. Why don't you talk about how you decided to approach the subject? Because you're right that the subject is so fraught with the politics of, I would say, faith politics, polygamy politics. Everybody comes in with a bias to the subject because it is such a loaded topic, especially for um, anyone with a Mormon background. So how did you work within uh, your biases, the biases of others, and with the historical record? Well, when we started, Marianne and I were talking about, okay, how do we approach this, etc. And right up front, I, I said to Marianne, I said, okay, I hope you know, I personally don't believe the Wooly story. And she said, I know, I do. And I said, I know. And I said, but that doesn't mean that I can't approach it in a respectful way. And I I referred to Jan Ships, who I think most people in your audience will probably know, maybe they do or don't, Jan Ships is a Methodist, and but uh, she's a she's a historian, a very well known and respected historian who has spent her career 
researching and writing about uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You know, she doesn't believe the Joseph Smith story, but she, uh, in her works, has approached it in a very respectful way. And so I really uh, tried to approach the Woolley story and fundamentalism in a very respectful way. And uh, Marianne and I both agreed, okay, we're going to be discussing the different groups. We need to try to be as neutral as possible. Now, did we succeed all the time? Well, maybe not. Uh, we hope we did, but others might come along and say, hmm, I don't think so. But we sincerely tried to be neutral and respectful of the different groups, whether we agreed with them or not. So that was kind of uh, how we approached it. Would you agree, Marianne? Yes, and we, we agreed at the outset that we would be, that we were not going to do a bashing job on either the church or any of the fundamentalist groups. Uh, that's not our purpose. Right. And that's really hard to do, I think, just in telling the story, because some of the perspectives, you know, some some groups would think invalidate another group's perspective. And it's, it is a very controversial thing, as anyone listening to this podcast will know. There's so many different narratives. And maybe maybe even what I've realized is I grew up in the LDS tradition. We have a lot of, I would say, folk and heritage stories surrounding the origins of our faith. And I found that that exists within fundamentalist um, origin stories too. And so I imagine that you can't make anyone happy because when you go with a lot of what the historical record says, it's not always the stories that people were taught in church, no matter what their church group is. Right. That's that's, that's very true. And um, <laughs> um, Marianne and I both said, uh, we particularly as we got near the end of the writing process and we're editing, we we both commented to each other that well we'll probably uh, offend everyone and and so far we're we're kind of right um, <laughs> I, you know I I've had a a uh, um, a good friend of mine who is an active LDS uh, say oh you know this is this is fundamentalist propaganda that you wrote. And then we've had fundamentalists say, wow, this, this is horrible. You're attacking us. So, But so, on the other hand, we've had a lot of good book reviews. We have had um, some wonderful reviews. So. We have had, uh, I have had members of the church. Um, uh, one uh, wrote a review and, and, and it was very good. And, and he, he talked about the fact that he had learned things that he had not previously known. I had a friend of mine who was an, an active apologist who read it and told me, this is wonderful. You've done a great job uh, of telling their story. And that's how he put it. And we have had uh, fundamentalist friends um, who have have said that they, they loved it. Okay. So we've had, we've had people say, oh, this is you know, this is horrible. And we've had others say this is wonderful. And that's probably the sign of um, we did something right. Yeah, I know something about that. <laughs> Definitely with this podcast. So 
Let's um let's get into the history a little bit. I don't want to give any spoilers because uh, I want people to buy the book. But if you were to give us sort of a quick and dirty summary of Mormon fundamentalist history, I know anyone listening to the podcast is already going to know this, but if someone were just tuning into this episode, what are the basic details of uh, fundamentalist history? And when you say fundamentalist history, what are you referring to specifically? I, I can make a stab at it, and Craig, you can follow up. Um, okay. But I would say that they need to understand that fundamentalist Mormonism, by and large, there are some exceptions of people that claim fun, to be fundamentalist Mormons that do not do not fall into this category. Uh, but by and large, they need to understand that the, fundamentalist Mormons, for the most part, are are historically Mormons in both lineage and in history and in doctrine, particularly in the early eras of the church up to the manifesto. So they need to know that they have that background. I, I agree completely with what Marianne said. The, um, I, while there have been some people who have found their way into fundamentalism in, in one group or another, uh, with with no LDS background, <laughs> that's very very few. Most of them either have a heritage that a Mormon heritage, or they themselves have left the church and joined uh, a fundamentalist group. So they 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 really kind of um, um, a number of these people reflect uh, really. The, the early members of the of the LDS Church who were basically seekers who were who were going from one group to another uh, Methodist Presbyterian whatever else you know and and eventually found their way into Mormonism because they were seeking something and um, it's remarkable how many people I have talked with who who have moved from the LDS Church into fundamentalism, how, as they told me their story, they were converts, and they had converted to the LDS Church, and then as they continued to learn uh, Mormon history and doctrine, then they started seeking for something, I, I guess you could say, more traditional or more fundamental, because they felt that the church in its present form didn't have quite what they were looking for. And what is interesting is I have talked with people uh, in the LDS church who said, yes, I, I went uh, and was with this group or that group for a while, and then I returned to the church because I realized, okay, they they didn't quite have what I was looking for either. I think I was uh, more content in the church, and so they have returned into the church. And so there is some some fluidity there, back and forth. So where would you say that quote fundamentalist history begins? With well, Joseph Smith, you can't separate <laughs> <from> that. <laughs> yes. Yes, that is true with Joseph Smith, because as Marianne, I think, uh, explained very well that that these most of the people have a foundation in the LDS church, either through their heritage 
or they themselves. And so I would agree with her there. But in terms of the fundamentalist story, the major fundamentalist groups, and and I realize this is a real generalization uh, because, I mean, we have groups like the Kingstons um, who whose story is just a little different, you know, and there are other groups like that, but we'll, we'll, we'll do the generic um, and, and say the major groups, which uh, would be uh, um, AUB, FLDS, Centennial Park, etc. They, they trace their origins to the John Taylor revelation in 1886 and to the, basically the Woolley story John W. Woolley and Lawrence C. Woolley, who carried with them later, and this would and this was in the mostly in the twenties, but beginning in the teens, um, that the message that uh, the authority to to marry plurally to seal um, uh, those marriages that the authority did exist with with people other than just the president of the church who by that time was saying absolutely no plural marriages, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and said for those who, who had felt a great loss, who felt like, um, this had, um, this had been taken from them and, um, the, the opportunity to marry plurally, to, to live the gospel as they understood it. This was a wonderful message, and um, and so I would say that if you're if you're really going to say, okay, where did fundamentalism begin? It for a good percentage of fundamentalists, it goes back to John W. Woolley and his son Lawrence C. Woolley and their their message of continued authority. So, so that brings up an interesting question. As you were researching this history, how hard was it to uh, find documents, um, find journal entries? Because as we've covered on this podcast, this is a very controversial beginning. And there have been, I, I believe, some efforts to sort of, uh, I don't know, downplay this, the, the woolly history. Did you find that to be true? Uh, yes, uh, there's, there have, there, it's a history that is do- difficult to document. And uh, as you know, Michael Quinn spoke on the subject of John and Laura Woolley in, in uh, recently and gave a lot of interesting information that even that we haven't had access to as fundamentalists or as historians generally. So uh, we're looking forward to his bringing out those things. We it, it's a history that is we did find things that we felt that were were useful in documenting the beliefs of the people. Um, you're not going to find an absolute uh, any more than you're going to find a really good documentation for Joseph Smith's first vision. You just you know you have to take it or you have to leave it. You know, in fact, um, the the first chapter of our book is titled "A Matter of Faith," and um, you know, so we start with uh, the, the Joseph Smith story, and then uh, in then the introduction of plural marriage by Joseph Smith, and we emphasize the fact that that it took faith 
for the early members of faith to believe um, uh, the story of the first vision of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and it took faith to enter into the principle. And uh, then we kind of used that theme because it took faith for the um, for the early fundamentalists or those who became known as fundamentalists. It took faith for them to believe the woolly story because, um, well, as Marianne said, as with the Joseph Smith story, you're not going to find um, hard, concrete uh, evidence, uh, you know, documents uh, signed by God or whatever. <laughs> and and you're not going to find that with the Woolies either. Um, uh, and, and so it took faith for these early uh, people to, to believe um, what uh, John and Lauren Woolley were, were teaching uh, in, in terms of, of their claims to proper authority. And we, we go with that theme actually all the way through. And the final chapter, which is the concluding chapter, we titled it Still a Matter of Faith, because it still takes faith to to believe um, uh, the origins of, of, uh, of authority and to believe that this authority has continued all the way down to the present and that this is indeed what God wants people to do. So as you're researching this and writing about this, and you guys are quite familiar with this history, did you find any surprises in your research or things that perhaps you didn't know before? Yes. I found uh, found things that I was surprised to find. Um, I found that John Woolley had uh, married a wife, a plural wife, posthumously, uh, the, the half-sister of his first wife, Julia Enzyme. And she had been married and uh, had four children, and only three of them survived. But she died shortly after her ch- childbirth with her last child, she had separated from her husband, divorced him. He had her sealed to him, and the children were all named, the three surviving sons whom he raised were all named in his will. Oh, wow. And I, I too, found um, there were things that surprised me uh, in, in some of the interviews that I conducted. Uh, the, the level of uh, commitment which, it, which involved sacrifice on the part uh, you know we look at those in in history and we're aware of the of those who suffered in the 1944 raid and and uh, those who suffered in the 1953 short creek raid but we have people today who when when they made the decision to move into fundamentalism it took commitment and and it and it involved loss and and I don't think I had realized the level of that uh, until I began to to do interviews first for the persistence of polygamy series and then uh, continuing on for this book as I talked with people and they recounted losing spouses both both husbands and wives 
of of losing family that you know their children rejected them and uh, some of them and told them I I don't want to have anything to do with you and and of and of finding family or renewing family relationships I talked with one gentleman who told about how when when he first moved into fundamentalism that it was devastating for his family and they refused to have anything to do with him. Um, the older children already had children of their own, so grandchildren for him, and they refused to let him see the grandchildren because they were afraid that he would molest them because that's just what polygamists do. And and how how it it was so difficult for him. But then over the years, as they saw that that it had changed his life, that that he had become a a different person and and in many ways a better person, how they then began to to regain relationships with him and allow him to be with his grandchildren. And, and uh, he, he told about how now they, they, they consider him as a part of their family again. And the, the love and the joy that, that he feels that they are willing to do that. So, so kind of a long way of saying that for me, some of the surprises just had to do with these personal stories that, that are just so powerful. Yeah, and I think that's one of the sort of controversial things, I, I, maybe the uncomfortable truth with this history. And, you know, even when I started out this podcast, I held a, a similar bias against these communities. And, you know, part of the charm of the podcast, I think, for a lot of people is you hear me sort of learn how complicated the history is and how I think one of the most surprising things for me was just how how alike my LDS experience is with so many fundamentalists and yet I put myself above them and and what's been interesting to be in some of these communities is to realize that they did the same thing right they were taught that the LDS was lower law I was taught that they were the weirdos and we just kind of did that thing um to each other and I've seen the damage personally that that has done in dividing people and dehumanizing different communities. So that's why I think this history is important. Yes. So um, talk to me about, again, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but if you could each choose one really, I would say, critical aspect of the history, if there is something that you think everybody should know about this history, perhaps no one really understands well about fundamentalist Mormonism. My immediate reaction is it's in the first chapter. I really, it's really important to me for to people to understand the the basis of fundamentalist doctrine and, and belief is based in the Joseph Smith story. And uh, we have quoted Harold Bloom, who is a non-Mormon Yale professor who is Jewish himself, identifying Joseph Smith's polygamy as part of ancient religion and, I, and identifying that it had to be if, that, if, if his understanding of, of what God-making, he called it Joseph Smith's God-making, was all about. And it's really important to, to, for, for, to understand fundamentalism in that context. You know that's that, and I agree with Marianne there, and and these these um, these underlying messages there 
Um, you can find them in uh, the early days, the early development of fundamentalist Mormonism. But there's another thing that that I found that I thought was maybe not earth-shatteringly important, but I thought was fascinating, and and it's the genealogist in me, I guess, because like Marianne, I have um, I have been involved in uh, uh, genealogy for for years. That's that's my profession is a an accredited genealogist. And so I, I always like looking at, at things in terms of that. And, and for those who have studied early Mormon history of, um, of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball and, and the Pratt brothers, et cetera, and so forth, you're, you're, you're probably well aware of the fact of how many people were related to each other. That uh, you know, you you had you had the Youngs, the Greens, the Kimballs, uh, the Richards. They, they they were all they were all interrelated, and and people found fellow relatives or or friends to uh, to convert to to give the good news of the of the restored gospel. And I found that the same thing happened during the early development of fundamentalist Mormonism. And we, we've included examples in the book, but, um, but quite frankly, Marianne and I have talked about the fact that we could probably do a book just on that, of these various hot spots of early fundamentalism and how these families were connected well before they they ever got into fundamentalism. You know, we, we all joke about the fact that, well, you know, everyone's related in fundamentalism. You know, um, it's it's kind of a running joke with Marianne and me um, as I have attended uh, their their church services. She'll she'll lean over to me and say, "Now, see that person? Um, uh, that's a cousin of mine on my father's side, or that's a cousin on my mother's side, and they are so and so, and they're related to so and so, and it's it, it's got to the point where I'll smile at her and I'll say, "Well, of course they are, because um, so many people are related to each other." But what has really kind of surprised me, and I have found to be fascinating is how many people were related before they entered into fundamentalism. And so very much like their own ancestors, who, when they heard the good word of the restored gospel, they went to fellow family members or to friends and neighbors. The same thing happened in these early days of fundamentalism. They went to their uh, various family members. They went to their friends and neighbors, and this network was created that that extended throughout Utah, into Wyoming, Idaho, down into Arizona, and then eventually um, even moved over into California, uh, where various families came out of these areas into fundamentalism. And so it's a fascinating story uh, that probably I'm going to I'm boring the podcast people uh, to death, but as a genealogist, I love it. So I'll be quiet now. <laughs> no, I mean, I la- that's been really fun for me in these communities to realize how, you know, I come from, 
you know, pioneer heritage. And so to realize how connected we are and connected to places and people and histories is, has been really great. One of the things I really appreciated about your book is the images. You guys have some great images. Like I think your book was the first time I ever saw John Woolley's pioneer home. And I think and I'm trying to find it in the book right now, but it's got like three doors on it because he had his plural wives there. You have modern um, polygamy homes. You have historic polygamy homes. Can you talk to me about some of your favorite images that are in the book? Uh, Craig, what are your favorite Okay, I, I will mention uh, a couple of images that I just absolutely love. Um, I... I really get into the into the more that the personal, and so I really love the the photos, uh, both early and modern, of of families. Uh, one of my favorite photos, which is just going to sound weird, uh, because you know it isn't that exciting really, but one of my favorite photos is um, a photo I took of. Um, I was at the Rocky Ridge meeting house when they were having primary and I, I sat in the back. I asked beforehand, I asked a couple of the leaders, I said, I really want to get a picture of the primary kids. And, and so I took that picture and it was just a fun one for me. The, the, uh, the problem was I think I took like 15 pictures and most of them, one or two or three or four of the kids are looking back at me like, what are you doing there? And so we couldn't use those. But um, I really liked that one. I love the photo of, of, uh, of, um, of uh, Joseph Lyman Jessup and his daughters. I just thought that was great. And, um, and then I really, really liked, um, I liked the photos of the, of the temple, the AUB temple down in Mexico, because they had sacrificed so much to, to build that temple and they built it themselves. And you can just see the love that went into that temple. And um, on the flip side, I love the photos of the, of the temple for the uh, righteous branch of the Church of Jesus Christ, or the Church of Christ, as they're also called, um, known as the Peterson Group. And just wonderfully, wonderfully uh, kind people that I visited with, and they offered to send some photos of their temple. And I, I cannot tell you how humble I was how much I appreciated that they were willing to share something so sacred. So, sorry. <clears throat> no, yeah, I've always found them to be pretty open. Um, you know, we've had some of the members on and historians from their group. In fact, Ann Hatch, who is a temple worker from their community, she actually nudged me and she's like, you got to get these guys on the podcast. Yeah, I think I think that's really cool. And... Another chapter that I really loved, and I hope I'm not cutting you off, but uh, no. John W. Taylor. John W. Taylor is a huge character. He's a very important figure in Mormon fundamentalist history, and yet 
most people don't know about him, and you have a whole chapter on him and his excommunication. So I was hoping you could just sort of tell people about who he was and why he's important to this history. Marianne? Well, John W. Taylor um, is important to the history because he uh, um, was willing to bring his father's revelation and have it read to the Twelve. And he suffered excommunication himself um, over performing plural marriages. And and so even though he didn't live long enough, he died in 1916 before fundamentalists really, really became an issue. But due to him, the, the revelation was circulated partially due to him. The, the revelation was circulated, and he he stood up for that revelation, and so he's a hero to many fundamentalists because of his, uh, his unwillingness to compromise for political expediency. I don't know if I could add any more. Um, that's, that pretty much uh, described. He, he felt strongly enough about continued plural marriage that he was willing to suffer excommunication. And and um, whether you agree with him or not, you can't help but respect him for standing up uh, for what he believed and, um, and being willing to uh, suffer for it. Yeah, I wanted to say that my some of my favorite photos are of the women. And especially the last photo in the book, which is a photo of my own grandmother. She was such a delightful person and a very staunch fundamentalist. She didn't start out that way. She was widowed when she was young. And so she, and then she married into fundamentalism. Her photo is a favorite of mine. But I also like a lot, saw a lot of the photos that we were able to obtain that uh, were of, of people that were of good quality because I don't think people realize the differences in the ages of of some of the some of the original people that were involved. Well, for instance, Samuel Bateman. I we ha- I had several good pictures of him, but one of the one we used is really high quality. And um, there's a lot of a lot of young people that really haven't don't have access to these things. So I'm really happy to put those photos in. That was something that was really exciting, um, I think, for both of us, but but particularly for me, since you know I'm coming from the outside, and and I've only seen a certain number of of photos um, of of um, early fundamentalism, particularly, or even of of modern fundamentalism, uh, other than those that, in the process of my doing research. You know, when people I've interviewed, they would show, you know, family photos or something like that. But you see, so many of those pictures that we that we have um, in the book, I mean, these are pictures that have never before been published. And and it was just so exciting to, um, um, uh, you, you know, Marianne would say, well, I talked with so-and-so and she had this picture and she would show me and I'd go, Wow, you know, <laughs> that'll be great because there were so many of these pictures that that uh, had just been kept in the family, you know, whichever family it was, and and um, 
and yet they were willing to <laughs> to share them with us uh, and and allow us to uh, to publish them. Well, yeah, so that I was mean, a lot of fun. John Woolley with like the beard and the bowler hat on is is a great photo, and you've got some of his wives on there, which was really great for me to see because I had tried to research them, and it's really limited what I could find, you know, without going into deep dive into archives, but getting things from families is so cool. And, and that's a thing that I think that this book brings that I haven't seen out there. And another thing that I really appreciated about the book, speaking of families, is you highlight the prominent families of early fundamentalism, like the Barlows, the Steeds, the Jessups. Why did you, why did you decide to go that route and talk about those families? Well, for instance, for, uh, it's important to understand that those are still some of the main families in fundamentalism across the broad spectrum. But we had done projects over the last s- several years, and that came out of our research. We had to. St- we are both family historians. We are genealogists, and so it's our natural tendency to, to research the families that we're talking about. And we found that there was a story there that needed to be told. So we wanted to include some some of that. But like like Craig said, we have enough material to fill a book. We we and really just on, do just and on the families. Yes, and and also both of us are firm believers that that the family really is the foundation um, uh, of, of so many things because. Um, Without these, without these tight families, um, I don't know if it would have lasted. Yeah, because they they really did go through a lot, and um, and so we 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 wanted to emphasize um, these these origins, these families, because as Marianne said, uh, you, you know you can go into the various groups and and also among the independents, and you're going to find descendants of these of these uh, families. Yeah, that was one of my favorite things about the book because in my experience, it's just exactly how you said everybody in, not everyone, but a lot of people in these communities can be traced back to one of these families or they, you know, they have an aunt or an uncle who married into one of the families. And right. to understand <laughs> this history, you really do have to know about the Jessups and the Barlows and the Steeds, you know, all of these uh, and the Johnsons and all these and all these folks that you're talking about. Is there something that you guys want to cover that I haven't brought up yet? You know, one thing that I that I want to mention, and I've I've mentioned this to uh, to a few people as I've uh, visited with them about the book. You know, I went into this not being a believer. I I am still not a believer, and hopefully, I don't offend anyone by saying that. But but that's that's the case. But I have such an incredible respect for the people back then for the people today and and I I have I've talked with friends who are uh who are LDS and I've talked with friends who are fundamentalist and I've said you know it would be great it would be wonderful if we could sit down and say okay I don't believe but I respect you and I respect your belief Let's talk. Let's just visit. Let's let's try to understand each other because we we are 
we are connected. As I wrote in an article that I published, oh, geez, a handful of years ago in an interpreter, uh, separated but not divorced, I talked about the fact that no, ha- no matter how much the LDS church would, would love to kind of push the polygamous heritage into the background and hope that everyone forgets, it won't happen. They will forever be connected with that, and they will forever have a reminder with modern fundamentalists. So, so um, you might as well just accept that heritage and maybe learn from each other and respect from each other. And, and at the end of the day, we can walk away and we can say, I still have my belief system. You have yours. But... I have a lot of respect for what you are willing to do to live the gospel as you understand it, and hopefully you have respect for how I have interpreted that I should be living the gospel. And that's what Joseph Smith established. He, he was willing to die for uh, other religions as well as his own. Yeah, and I think that's an important component. One of the things that I find when I talk to a lot of Mormons in different Mormon spaces is that story, that Joseph Smith's origin story sort of shows up over and over again. It repeats itself in a lot of these groups and communities and even in individual testimonies, wouldn't you say? Yes, most yes. definitely. Um. Okay, so let's talk about how people can get the book, how they can best support your work, and then I want to talk about projects that you guys are working on next. Okay. Craig, you can take it away. Sure. Okay, so the the book, um, you can purchase the book by either going to Arcadia online or to Amazon online. I understand, uh, in fact, I checked. It's also available online at Barnes & Noble. Um, you can go to Benchmark Books if you live in the Salt Lake area. I, I know that there are other stores that will eventually be carrying uh, the, the, the book. Um, Weller, Weller. Uh, uh, Weller Bookworks has the book available. And I understand that, um, and I don't know when that will be, but that it will be available in the various Barnes and Nobles uh, stores as well as Costco. But I'm not sure when that'll be for those. Uh, so in the meantime, uh, Benchmark, Weller, or going online to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or Arcadia, the actual publisher. Now that you guys have put this really important history out, are you guys taking a break? Is Are you working on stuff next. I know I've I've run into you a few times, mostly in Short Creek when we've been having conferences or doing service projects, but what are you guys up to right now? Well, well right now um, we're not working on anything, but we've talked about several projects. Yeah. And I don't know <laughs> we, how, how, how you want to con- comment on any of those yet. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 one, one project, I mean, we've kind of hinted at that, but we really would like to pursue maybe a little bit more of um, of uh, the, the work that uh, both of us have done on on some of these um, early fundamentalist families and and hotspots, for lack of better way of explaining it, um, 
you know, we we found hot spots in Cache Valley, Salt Lake, Davis County, of course, down in southern Utah, a few other places like that. And so we've thought of, you know, maybe it would be fun to do a book that just kind of uh, talks about these places, the families that were connected to them, and and how how fundamentalism spread uh, through these different families and and different places. That's one thing we've talked about, but if we do that, obviously it would be several years before anything uh, came out. There's other projects like that that we've talked about. And then I also have a couple of things on my own that I'm working on um, that, you know, eventually I'd like to at least do an article or two or something. So we're trying to keep busy, you know, um, Idle hands is what is that called again? The devil's playground or whatever. So we're we're trying to keep busy. I would encourage everyone to go purchase this book. It's kind of a it's really um, a good comprehensive history of all the stuff we've talked about, especially in the last the second part of this podcast. All the the modern fundamentalist stuff. I wish it had been around when I was parsing that out because I got to be honest, I I look back at some of the episodes where we talk about you know, the birth of fundamentalism or whatever. And I agree with you, Marianne, that's not quite accurate. But, you know, in the early 1920s and 1930s, and and it's it was so difficult for me who was just stumbling upon it to even understand because, you know, there were so many different avenues and families and, and politics happening. And so I just think that this was so needed, and I'm, I'm just really glad you guys did it. Thank you We're so much. We're happy with, with it. We hope that it will do some good that way. We'll put this up, and everyone, is there a way that people can reach out to you? Sure. If if someone has a question or comments or whatever else, uh, they can contact me at uh, um, one, the number one, Craig Foster at Comcast.net. I'll appreciate uh, any feedback. That That would be great, or questions. Yes, and they can reach me at ladyhawk99 at comcast.net. That's L-A-D-Y-H-A-W-K-9-9 at comcast.net. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to come on the podcast. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Lindsay. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.